Welcome to the Friday subscribers-only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday-only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths, about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights, and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Hello, Hub listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, your Executive Director. Welcome to this, our regular Friday Hub Roundtable. Each and every week, I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. We kick around some of the big issues and ideas in the news, hopefully leaving you with some new analysis and insights. Um, Stuart, I want to begin with uh, your article today, Friday, the 24th of June, in the Hub, that uh, unpacked some really interesting findings from our latest uh panel survey with uh, Leger Marketing and kind of drew a connection between the data around non-voters or unenthusiastic voters, I don't know how exactly to put it, and the type of politics that Pierre Polyev is trying to uh, really innovate around in terms of the current uh, conservative leadership. So why don't you just unpack that for us and then we can dig into it together. Yeah, this story really came out of an insight just from a chat that Sean and I were having about just this idea that, you know, the Liberals got five and a half million votes in the last election and the Conservatives got a little bit more. Uh, They didn't get the seats, though. Um, So Liberals got a slim minority, um, but there was about 10 million people who just didn't vote. And if you listen to all of our political dialogue about this, we're always talking about how can the Liberals steal some voters from the NDP? And how can the Conservatives get those uh, disaffected Liberals? And how can they build a coalition from that? And you just don't see that conversation of, what about energizing those people who don't vote? Or what about finding some way to appeal to them uh, to make them vote? Because it's not like it's a fixed number. This number changes every year. And uh, I think the reference point um, for us would be going back to 2015, when Justin Trudeau's Liberals did a really incredible job of activating young voters. And, you know, I think that you'll get a lot of different reasons for why that might be the case, but, you know, it was enthusiasm and they got it out there somehow. Um, And the enthusiasm among younger voters was on the left at that time. So I think probably the key insight to my piece is that we have noticed some data coming out of the pandemic. This is from polling we've been doing that um, the biggest group that has sympathy for what the truckers were trying to do are Canadians 18 to 34. So that doesn't mean they're happy with the tactics of the truckers or anything like that. But if you ask them, put that aside, do you agree with or have sympathy with what they're saying? It's young Canadians who are feeling it. And it's young Canadians who I think are part of these big crowds that Pierre Polyev is drawing. So I I don't know if this is going to pan out in a federal election that could be three years from now. But I think it is something something worth examining right now, which is that this could be a new group of people who are new to politics and are experiencing this for the first time. Thanks, Stuart. Sean, what do you take away from this? I mean, traditionally, non-voters really have been 
uh, effectively abandoned by political parties because, hey, they do that thing that political parties don't like, which is they don't vote. And we know that voting is a habit in election to election. If people don't vote, they generally remain non-voters. It's very difficult uh, to get them uh, out of their apathy into active political participation. Um, so what's your take here? Is there something, something real that's happening here? Are the numbers meaningful? I think potentially in terms of the political landscape that's uh, shaping up in the country. Yeah, let me just start by saying how proud I am to be able to provide a platform for Stuart and others to produce this kind of analysis that you don't see in a lot of other places, doing deep dives to understand who these non-voters are, you know, what the what their kind of de- demographic characteristics are, uh, what seems to be standing in the way. Uh, of them fully participating in the politics. So I just want to recognize what a terrific piece this is um, by Stewart and our partnership with, with Ledger Marketing. The, the second thing I'd say, uh, Rudyard, in direct response to your comments about uh, the fact that uh, political parties don't take a lot of interest in these voters, because of course they're in the business of securing votes and why bother with people who aren't participating. You know, I think setting aside the kind of strategic or tactical case for trying to engage this large um, voter cohort, there's a kind of moral argument, isn't there? Um, you know, it seems to me uh, we should want a political process that's inclusive. I think there is evidence from uh, uh, from other countries uh, that a, a failure to bring these types of voters into mainstream politics is actually a recipe for the rise of populism or other kind of forms of disaffected politics. So, you know, if you're, there's even a kind of prudential argument for trying to find ways to engage these voters. And then I guess just the last point about, you know, is there something interesting or durable happening here? I think Stewart's piece makes the case that there is, um, that um, uh, particularly amongst younger voters who've uh, been disproportionately affected um, by choices that we've made over the past couple of years in the pandemic are increasingly taking on a kind of generational identity. And, you know, that refle- is reflected in the energy around housing, for instance. Um, and, and so I guess that's a long way of saying Pierre Pauli of either by happenstance or intention seems to have kind of put his finger on the pulse of this energy around a cohort of galvanized young voters who've uh, for a long time been outside the political process, but if he can bring them in and in effect enlarge um, the, the voter universe, then kind of all bets are off in terms of uh, scoring um, the, the next federal election. Do you share that view, Stuart, that there's, there's a bit of electricity here? There's some real connectivity that's happening between a traditionally alienated voter base. I was interested in your article. You had a quote by um, one of the people that worked uh, to unseat Jason Kenney that the kind of pocketbook issues that are affecting Canadians today are providing a newfound kind of impetus for people to care about politics that rightly or wrongly, and whether the blame is being attributed correctly or not, people are increasingly angry, frustrated, worried about some pretty basic personal uh, finance concerns and they're turning to whatever political leader, whatever political party seems to be offering something that syncs up with that anxiety, syncs up with that energy that's out there in the broader public. 
Yeah, that so that is a quote from Vitor Marciano, who's involved with uh, Brian Jean in Alberta and has been sort of broadly involved in this effort against Kenny. But, you know, I talked to him months ago and that quote, I've just been, it's stuck in my brain since I spoke to him, which is that this is a growing group of people who've never been involved in politics, who all of a sudden realized that in the past, they didn't care about politics, but politics cared about them. And I think that is just a really interesting way to put it, because I think we saw a similar thing happen with Donald Trump in the US, where, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to um, the American journalist Tim Carney's analysis of this, which he found that, you know, it wasn't necessarily people who were having economic problems who were supporting Trump, it was people who were in areas that were in economic decline. So your salary might be okay in that moment, but the prevailing sense that you get is that things are going south. And I think that's how people look to politics. They say, is this going to get better for me or is it going to get worse regardless of my current uh, situation? So I think that is um, something we've been tracking for a year is this feeling of hopelessness. And, you know, it's something that um, can be really destructive, I think, in a society. And it's something that I think as a politician, you can't just say, um, you know, as Hillary Clinton would say, you know, um, America was always great. We don't need to, to be great again. Um, you can't just say that. You have to acknowledge that people might have real grievances and then you have to go with the solution. It's just kind of, you know, basic communication stuff. And I, I guess that, you know, one of the major takeaways for me, uh, Rudyard and Stewart from Stewart's piece is um, how seemingly marginal differences could make a pretty profound uh, impact on election results. Uh, Stuart uh, talked earlier, uh, Rudyard, about the 2015 election campaign in which the Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau went from third to first. A big part of that was pushing up um, turnout amongst um, younger voter demographics, um, in effect, those between the ages of 18 to 34. And it seems to me issues like marijuana decriminalization, electoral reform, climate change were probably part of the proposition that the then liberals put forward to, to juice a turnout amongst that cohort and bring them from, from third to first. Um, uh, but in the intervening two elections, they fell back to their participation pre-2015. And what's interesting in the intervening time, as we've just been discussing, there's a, a kind of new set of issues animating that cohort, housing, job precarity, the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, that may actually um, be a better fit uh, for the, the political right. And, and you don't need massive increases. Marginal differences matter given how close our, our politics are. And, and so you know, it's, it's a kind of interesting dynamic here where, um, as Stuart said at the outset, a lot of people continue to use a kind of traditional lens to score our politics. How do you pull a few voters from this party to the other party and vice versa? Um, but I think it'd be interesting if ultimately Justin Trudeau is defeated by, in effect, the conservatives using Justin Trudeau's own strategy to increase the voter turnout uh, amongst these groups and, you know, in effect, kind of swamp um, the uh, typical voter universe for the, the, the different parties. I, let me put it to you, Rudyard. You've, you've been following a lot of these bread and butter economic issues. You, you know, it seems to me, as you alluded to earlier, that when the economy is performing well, people have the kind of luxury of tuning out of politics. Uh, as we enter a period of kind of sustained uh, economic turmoil, people will have no choice but to, to, to tune back in. You know, what, what, what's your sense of that? Yeah, you know, I read a, a super smart, uh, just quick, very 
clarifying analysis by a guy called Ray Dalio. So if you follow, you know, the world of uh, investing, Ray Dalio is a kind of uh, a legend. He created this company called Bridgewater, just highly successful over a long, long period of time. And in, in this note that you can find on his LinkedIn page, he had a, I think, a something that stuck with me, which is the idea that, again, there is no free lunch in terms of what's going to happen over the next period of time. And, and this could, gentlemen, be you know, not just a question of 2023, but maybe beyond, which is either way through higher rates or higher inflation. So higher interest rates in the Bank of Canada or you know, higher sustained inflation or some combination of the two, growth is lower, right? There, there's no scenario where you get high rates and high growth. Okay, we know that, but equally we've got to understand that inflation is itself uh, uh, a suppressant when it comes uh, to growth because so much of our, our spending gets diverted to, uh, yes, meeting those mortgage payments and all that other stuff, but also just rising, um, you know, rising costs related to dur durable goods, groceries, all the everyday pocketbook uh, concerns. So if you really internalize that thinking and you say to yourself, yeah, the central banks can cut rates a bit, possibly in 2023, if the economy's, you know, slows, that doesn't mean unless we're really lucky, and I don't rule this out, inflation completely goes away, you're still going to have, you know, inflation hanging around or some combination of inflation and interest rates for a period of time. And I think that, guys, is going to be uh, potentially politically explosive. The longer it lasts, the longer people feel after, again, a remarkable period of a decade or more of just sustained economic prosperity, uh, fueled again by a whole lot of debt and deficit spending. Nonetheless, as that starts to feel as if it's part of the past and not the future and certainly not the present, uh, I think that there's, there's some insight here that's worth keeping in mind about the quiet majority or the apathetic majority who who suddenly wake up and say, whoa, um, this pain point, this pressure point, too much. This has got to stop. Uh, I need a solution. Let me respond to that. I, I think that's exactly right. And let me, I'll add another layer to this conversation, which is, you know, a sustained series of examples of government failure. Um, you, you know, we, we are talking against the backdrop of massive lineups to get passports, um, massive lineups at airports, you know, growing evidence um, that the, the Bank of Canada made some really significant mistakes over the past couple of years to say nothing of a new scandal in Ottawa uh, about allegations that the RCMP commissioner was interfering in an ongoing investigation for political ends. And, you know, that kind of combination of issues, I, I think is going to make it increasingly difficult for progressive parties to be advancing the case for a larger larger and more activist government. Uh, Pierre Polyev said something in a video yesterday that resonated with me, and I suspect resonated with a lot of the voters that were or non-voters that we're talking about today, that this is a government that is doing a lot of things poorly and what we need is a government that does a, a few things well. Um, and so, you know, when you add up all of these different factors, it seems to me that there's this unique window of opportunity for uh, conservatives to uh, energize um, this cohort of voters. Um, and 
uh, enable it to uh, reach a, a larger share of the population than it has in the in the past series of election cycles? Well, as long as they don't go off the deep end of the World Economic Forum, <laughs> no vaccines for any pathogens of any kind at any point in the future. I'll, you know, there's there's still a bit of water here. The canoe, Sean, still has to make itself make its way across what's a fairly turbulent river of center-right politics at this moment. But look, let's take a break, guys. Uh, back on the other side with the second half of today, uh, our roundtable uh, on the 24th of June. Back in a moment. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a Hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Hey, Hub listeners, you're back with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-at-chief, me, Rudyard Griffiths, your erstwhile executive director. God, all those titles, guys. It just, you know, it just rolls off the tongue. Wow. But seriously, uh, we're all about informality here at the Hub. And let's kick off the second half of this conversation in that spirit we were just talking about you know, uh, apathetic voters potentially coming back into Canadian politics as a result of uh, pocketbook issues and concerns. The other issue, guys, and to pick up really, Sean, on what you, what something you mentioned uh, briefly prior to the break, this uh, sense somehow that the government of Canada, like many employers across the country, is dealing with um, the same red hot job market uh, that is restricting uh, the available supply of labor and causing uh, disruptions. But Sean, am I right to think that the opportunity cost for government here is bigger, uh, that there are, for better or worse, fair or not, there are a series of public perceptions about how government should function when it comes to kind of frontline services, people's individual interactions with the state. And it's one thing when you show up at a Tim Hortons and you have to wait in the line for your double-double because there's not enough people behind the counter, you might be annoyed by that. But when you show up as a taxpayer to a federal office and you're sleeping on the floor <laughs> to get your passport the next day for your summer vacation, that's a whole different level of frustration and anger. I think, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, if we, if we go back in history, just a, just a, a brief moment, um, you know, the, one of the major reasons that Republicans made major gains in the 2010 uh, midterm elections was, was not because people were necessarily opposed to Obamacare in principle, um, but when the Obamacare website malfunctioned, you know, it, 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 I think it raised a host of questions about the government's capacity to deliver on the ambition of the healthcare legislation. If governments can't run websites, how can they deliver healthcare? And I, it seems to me that this passport issue, which has really exploded in the past uh, week or 10 days, 
is probably doing more harm to progressive ambitions about a large activist government than anything any conservative politician or market-oriented think tank uh, or a podcast could ever do. Uh, it is out in the open. And, uh, you know, it seems to me um, for uh, an incoming generation, a new generation of people engaging politics and, and, and policy, um, the lineups at our passport offices across the country may be the, the kind of, in hindsight, the symbol of uh, a, a kind of renewed um, interest uh, in kind of ideas of, of, of limited government, um, be, because as you say, it's just such a, a kind of tangible failure uh, on the part of a government to deliver basic public services. Stuart, you come in on this. What's what's your take? Is this really, um, as Sean would paint it, maybe I feel this way too, somehow more corrosive to perceptions of um, the value of government, its relative importance and ability to, to meet, again, what are pretty everyday practical needs, which is like getting your passport renewed. I mean, last time I checked, I, actually, China is not renewing passports. I think something incredible, like there's a couple hundred million people in China who previously had passports who don't. <laughs> I think that's for a slightly more suspicious or, or, uh, or uh, worrying reasons of what's going on in Canada. But what's, what's your take, Stuart? Yeah, I do. I was thinking back to an interview I did years ago with uh, Stephen Harper, former Stephen Harper advisor, and it was there was some kind of political kerfuffle happening with Justin Trudeau, and it wasn't a big one. And we were chatting about that, but this person was saying, you know, these things just add up. There's just a perception thing that adds up. Like if the premiers are mad at you and you have some little scandal, and then something else is going on, um, it just adds to the, the the perception of your competence or lack thereof. And I think that's kind of what's happening right now. Um, but I think there's also something deeper here, which is that, you know, I'm certainly guilty of this. I think a lot of us are guilty about just thinking in terms of ideal ideology when we're talking about politics, about, you know, policies and things like that. But there is a very important thing, um, something like managerial competence or just effectiveness, something that is so important that when you get into government, you have all these plans can you actually implement them? And the liberals came in with deliverology and all these ideas of how to do that. And I think we sometimes forget that what they're actually doing is managing our government. You know, they're, they want to do daycare because they have ideological reasons to do that. Fair enough. Um, if they can do it, great. But I think the question now is, can they do it? And, you know, you think back to Jason Kenney's tenure in Alberta, a lot of great ideas, but there were some questions about, you know, managerial competence there. And, you know, the pandemic has scrambled a lot of our perceptions of, you know, is someone actually doing well or is the situation so bad that it's almost impossible to do well? Um, but this is part of that. Are, are they actually running the government well rather than are they doing things that I might or might not like? Look, in, in fairness, though, Sean, to, you know, our political class, I mean, isn't part of the story here uh, two things. One, a culture of accountability that voters, frankly, have demanded, not simply of politicians, but of our public institutions and our mainline bureaucracy. So on one hand, we're all too keen for the latest Auditor General's report, you know, calling out error here, you know, problem there. Uh, and, 
And at the same time, we want fast, efficient, effective government at you know, zero risk uh, with obviously no scandal. And um, doesn't that put, frankly, a lot of the bureaucrats in, in just an impossible position? Yeah, I think there's something to that. You know, one of the writers um, who's writing and thinking has influenced how I think about these issues is Philip Howard, who uh, famously wrote a book called Rules for Nobody. Um, and his basic thesis is when you create uh, a system of government that is weighed down by all of these bureaucratic rules, you, you kind of effectively dehumanize people. Um, you, you get government to rules as opposed to people exercising um, their their judgment um, and their agency, and I, I think there's probably something to that. Um, that uh, a culture of bureaucracy leads to the kind of uh, kind of almost counterintuitively to a, a lack of individual accountability in search of some kind of false sense of collective accountability. Uh, so I think that's right. Uh, that said, um, you know it, it does it does seem to me important to emphasize that oftentimes when people make the case for limited government, they're not doing so because they're heartless or they lack compassion, but it's because they have a, a kind of clear-eyed understanding of the ability of, of these different organizations, especially at the national level, to somehow micromanage the economy or um, you know, lead an energy transition or any of the number of other things that, um, that the Trudeau government has the ambitions of the Trudeau government has imposed on uh, on the, the federal government. And um, this is where I think Polyev's line, he's great at these kind of quips, uh, a government that does too many things does them poorly, and a government that does few things does them well. I, I think increasingly that's a kind of formulation that is going to find a, a, an audience beyond just conservative partisans, um, and, and including um, the group um, that was the subject of, of Stewart's article today. Hmm. Stuart, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I, I hope that people think that way. I also know that people want a lot of government, right? I mean, they, they, they love the idea of having uh, all kinds of uh, services. And because of, you know, changes in, in terms of the business world and just-in-time delivery and increasing, you know, customization and other advantages that the corporate sector has, you know, that government doesn't because of, Again, all the rules, the the web of bureaucracy that Sean just talked about. Um, I don't know. I, I I think Canadians are really torn about this. I, I I think we like to talk sometimes a tough game on on government, and you know they should be pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. And but you know who's going to be the first to come go kind of running to their local newspaper? You know if the the lawn at the local hockey rink isn't getting mowed you know, assiduously three days a week and there's, you know, dandelions, uh, you know, gracing the, uh, you know, the front lawn of the Aaron Ontario uh, junior hockey uh, arena. As a former local news reporter, I needed those people to fill my pages. So <laughs> I was totally on board with that. Um, but I, I think... I was thinking about this today, actually. What is, how would you counter this? How would you politically navigate these new waters? And one way I can think of is sort of the temperamentally conservative, cautious way of doing it, which is that you say, listen, my platform is not that I'm going to offer you a bunch of new things. I'm going to make things work well. And that 
I don't know if that would sell or not because people like the big things. They want to see a, an announcement about free daycare or whatever. Um, but I think it would be something worth trying and you can kind of see. Sure. Any, any, any luck yet on your free daycare? Has that, has that arrived <laughs> no, in the, in no, the Thompson well, household? Like here, you, here we go. Honestly, do you have an ETA on this? Um, I read a, an excellent CTV news story about how the deadline is September 1st. Um, and then you will get checks within those two months, but nothing has happened yet. Nothing has happened on the ground in Ontario to give me my money. Um, so I'll keep you guys posted on that. Um, so the, the counter to this though, the, the counter to the, the cautious temperamentally conservative way is something that our, one of our contributors, Ginny Roth, um, wrote last year for us, which talking about state capacity, she went the other way and said something like Mike Harris's common sense revolution, which was bold and ambitious and had big ideas, worked really well because it was a document that was very clear and it told bureaucrats what they were doing. There was no um, confusion at all inside the government of what Mike Harris's goals were when he took government. And I think that's interesting. I don't know where I stand on this, but the, you could imagine both these things happening in a political campaign and you can imagine ways they would be effective or not effective. Okay, Sean, let's give you the, the last word. I know you've often thought of that. Like, is there a way for an incoming government to kind of cut through the, the traditional miasma of, you know, bureaucratic uh, wrangling and protecting kind of vested interests and in programs? Because let's also face it, there are power centers in government. I've always felt that people have this view that government is somehow benign with regards to its own ambitions for growth, for enlargement, for, I mean, these, these are human institutions. Why wouldn't they behave like corporations? Why wouldn't they behave like, like individuals? I mean, government isn't just some passive monk-like entity sitting there benignly thinking about other people's best interests. Yeah, James Buchanan called public choice theory uh, politics without romance. And it, it seems to me, uh, you know, we have uh, a bunch of people seeing maybe for the first time um, uh, our politics um, through uh, a, a kind of clearer, clear eyed sense uh, when we have passport lineups uh, reaching seven and eight hours a, a day. I, I'll just wrap up by saying, um, Stuart mentioned the common sense revolution, uh, which was obviously a kind of big moment in center right policymaking in Canada. We'll have a federal election campaign in 2025, all things being equal, uh, which will be a, a major anniversary of the common sense revolution, which occurred in, in 1995. Uh, one wonders if what we're seeing now um, between these examples of government failure and the broader economic context um, that the conditions for a kind of modern common sense revolution um, may, may be taking shape. Okay, guys, thanks for a terrific uh, Friday roundtable. Great to be in conversation with you. Enjoy these uh, weekends of summer, long, hot weekends. We think about this all through January, February, March. Uh, let's make the most of it. Okay, guys? Take care. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of The Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. Hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, 
Check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only hub dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.